Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. Uh, I am Nathan Coleman Lamb, and I am joined today by Johanna Mellis. Hi, Johanna. Hi. And Derek Silva. Hi, Derek. Hey, Nathan. Listen, we're not going to talk for long today because the truth is that we have uh, a show that I at least am absolutely thrilled about sharing with you. Uh, we speak to sociolinguist uh, Kelly Wright about race, language, and sport, and kind of and everything associated with those ideas. It's really um, a crash course in an entire field of study and how it applies to sport and really, in my opinion, kind of the most compelling and accessible way you could possibly get it. So I'm just excited to turn it over. What about you guys? Absolutely. Can't wait for people to hear it. If you listen to the episode today and you like what you hear, and especially if you learn something, which we have a really good feeling that you are just going to learn so much information as the three of us did, uh, please rate and review us. It's something that we always really appreciate to hear how uh, you listeners are liking our episodes, what you're getting out of it. Um, also check in with us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is at end of sport pod. Um, retweet us. Um, you can stay up to date on the episodes that are coming out. Um, also feel free to shoot us an email at the end of sport at gmail.com. Kelly E. Wright is a PhD candidate in linguistics at the University of Michigan, where she studies sociophonetics, neurolinguistics, and historical sociolinguistics, focusing on the link between linguistic production and perception. She applies mixed methodologies, including machine learning, massive corpora studies, perceptual and cognitive experimentation, and quantitative phonetic and qualitative sociolinguistic analyses. Her work on linguistic racialization and sport, including an algorithm that predicts an athlete's race based on the words written about them, has appeared in The Undefeated and been discussed in Deadspin. Kelly, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Hello, thank you. So we have like so much to get into so here. Because <laughs> we got to break this all down. But before we do, we got to ask you, how are the pandemic, um, uprisings, rebellions, general social unrest treating you in Ann Arbor, Michigan? Yeah, it's been a time. <laughs> um so yeah i've been home since march 16th um was really lucky to to be able to get pretty stocked up um in the beginning uh and town really emptied out it's the ann arbor is definitely a college town so um when they closed the dorms students disappeared and it was actually kind of nice um <laughs> to have town empty that is not the case anymore um yeah we had a lot of a lot of cases in our county to begin with so it was it was it was pretty stressful um now i just i'm doing all right my, my mom is a nurse so mm -hmm. i get updates from her every day and the situation continues to change at her hospital but other than that i'm lucky that all my friends and family are healthy um, the uprising is very stressful, especially doing the work that I do. Um, mm. I'm called to talk about race a lot. Not that I'm upset about speaking with you all. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> um, but it's like, 
lots of acquaintances, right? Tag me in on conversations and I'm like, I'm busy. This is my job. So pay me to talk to me about <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or seriously. Go- or Google stuff. <laughs> um, but, but, um, yeah, no, I'm, 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 we're, we're holding it together. Um, we, Gretchen Whitmer is amazing. We, we had, you know, we were on stay at home order for almost three months and that was really nice. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of people jealous across this country uh, about that, I think, uh, as we just, opened. we talked a lot, quite a bit about Florida, for instance, because um, Johanna has a lot of experience with Florida and uh, not, not good down there at all. Uh, but I actually was struck by something you said that you said that the town, the town's filling back up with students. Um, it seems early for that. I know that we know that athletes are back on campus, so that's no surprise to us. Uh, and it's a deep horror. Um, other students too? Um, here and there, I think part of it is some of them went home in March and maybe now are, you know, not wanting to stay with their parents anymore. Um, and yeah, and people are out like the stay at home order is, is basically over and parties are back. Like, <laughs> um and stuff like that so yeah students came home uh, some students definitely came back to have their summer fun uh which is I terrifying see. it is uh, looking at in alabama right they're having they're having some kind of coronavirus parties where they're trying to be the first to get um get the virus so uh yeah uh, parties are, are great right now um all right well listen Let's bracket that discussion. It's going to be, that's going to be, you know, part of everything we're discussing here, as it always is, um, because, you know, it saturates our lives at this point. But I think that what we really need to do to dive in here is to start at the very beginning. Can you please tell us, Kelly, what the heck are sociophonetics, neurolinguistics, and historical sociolinguistics? And what do yeah. they have to do with sport? Okay. <laughs> right. So, all right. Sociophonetics is essentially okay how are how are all these things related neurolinguistics is the study of how language works in the brain which is fundamentally underneath all of the research questions that i ask the language system structures our thought and it is like the tool with which we use you know to communicate with other people and so that's that other people part is where the socio comes in. So sociophonetics is how is social information encoded in a voice? So for example, I'm assuming most of your listeners can tell I'm a woman if they hadn't looked at my name or my picture or any of that, right? <laughs> um, that's social information. You get it out of you get it out of my voice when you're processing it through your mind. Um, so that's that's part of the work that I do. I'm most interested in race. So how do we hear race? Um, And how does that, what we hear play into the ways we interact with other people and how we build and maintain stereotypes? And historical sociolinguistics then is looking at previous states of language. Um, So brains don't fossilize. So we can't dig up a guy, you know, from 1300 and pop open his brain and be like, this is what language was doing in your mind 
all this time ago. So we have some records of what language looked like, you know, what's, um, what's preserved uh, in the textual like archives and records, but we don't have recordings uh, for most of human history. Uh, there, there are no recordings, so we don't know what language sounded like. And we also don't know how people used it. So what historical sociolinguistics does is it bring it is interdisciplinary by nature. It brings in uh, social historians and um, you know other uh, ge- geographers, <laughs> all all kinds of things about how people moved and interacted, and to understand what daily life was like, so that we can understand the process of language change. So um, the the project that I'm here to talk with you all about is is historical sociolinguistics. Um, my, my, my corpus covers a hundred years, um, of sports journalism. Excellent. Um, thanks so much for providing those details. Um, especially the definitions, as I I mentioned earlier, these, your fields are not very familiar to me. So it's a huge, huge help to be able to have uh, really concise definitions down. Um, so we're really fascinated by the algorithm that you constructed to predict an athlete's race based on how they are described in written media. So can you explain how the algorithm works and what it reveals? Absolutely. So the algorithm works actually pretty simply. Um, it essentially just counts the words in an, in an article. Um, there's all this pre-processing of, of finding the text, right, and getting it into a format where the algorithm can read it. But essentially... I give the algorithm a task. I ask Mm -hmm. it to um, sort the corpus into two meaningful categories. So my corpus contains 8.5 million words. It has articles about individual athletes, so not teams. Mm -hmm. And it goes back 100 years. It's balanced for race and gender, meaning there are um, well, it's got 120 athletes, so 60 white, 60 black. In both of those groups, there are 30 men and women. So it's balanced for race and gender. And I just ask it simply by counting the words that occur, the, the number of times there, all the ofs and all the does and all the basketballs, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, to sort the, the corpus into two meaningful categories. So it, it could have sorted on gender, um, but it ends up sorting on race. So it finds race to be more meaningful than gender in this usage, in just general, raw, lexical usage. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's actually not supposed to work that way. I, there's yeah. like subsequent analyses that should have needed to happen that didn't need to happen because race is incredibly informative. Um, so then the second part of the, the task is um, to assess how that categorization took place. So, okay, you gave me two categories, but how did you determine which, which article went into which group? Um, and that's, uh, I use a random forest model to assess importance. So it gives me a list of words. And it says, here are all the ones, here are every word that appears ranked by importance to this sorting task. 
So for example, one word that is interestingly racialized is playgrounds. Mm. <laughs> um, wow. Why? We, we ask, right? Um, and it's because lots of uh, stories about athletes that are like coming up, like uh, athletes of color grow up in areas that have playgrounds instead of like in in inner cities or Mm -hmm. um in in others in more urban spaces instead of parks or um rec centers or you know um you know playing in like a a a school right um this is like it's extracurricular so that's something that we wouldn't normally think of as racialized but the importance measure tells us this word appeared only in these these stories and so I knew that every time that word appeared, it was a black person they were talking about, <laughs> at least. And that's like the algorithm saying, this is how I did this. <laughs> so essentially, I give it a task and then I ask it to tell me how it did it. So so just just for a point of clarity, can you explain a little bit about this random forest classification model and kind of break it down for maybe a listener who has no idea what machine learning is and what like really anything related to random forest is? Sure, Derek's just talking about me, by the way, Kelly. He's just talking about me. Let's let's be clear on that. Okay, <laughs> go on. Absolutely. So, it what the model does is it builds a bunch of decision trees. So, for mm. example, you imagine yourself standing in front of the refrigerator with the door open, <laughs> and you're like, "What am I going to eat right now?" And you end up picking just like a slice of cheese, <laughs> right? Um, this has never happened. It's not a story for my life. So, <laughs> um, so the decision, like the decision tree that the random forest would, would draw would be like, here are all the items in the refrigerator. Here are all the ways you could have gotten to choosing the piece of cheese. Like, here's what you had for breakfast. Here's how you're feeling. Here's the time of day, right? And so it does that calculation kind of over and over to get to the outcome. So you give it the outcome, which is the two groups, right? The sorted by race, the white athletes and the black athletes. Mm-hmm. And we ask, how'd you do that? <laughs> and it says, well, here's all of the ways I could have gotten there. That's the forest, right? It makes decision trees. Yeah. So, and then it gives you every single possible outcome, but it runs them many, 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 many times. And so the one path that is most common becomes your output, your answer, your list of important words. Um, and so that's, that's sort of what it does is it, it, it tries to get the answer that, it, that you came up with over and over and over again. And the most likely path is the one it gives you. So I think that that's most beneficial for Nathan, but I imagine it's also beneficial for um, for all of our listeners as well. Now, I think bringing it to the world of sport, like we're we're obviously uh, a podcast about sport, and we're interested in how your work is applied in the field of sport. Can you walk us through the specific sort of choice of words and diction in the context of sport that is racialized and why it has? Um, racial and racist connotations or how it can have racist uh, connotations? Sure. So I started this work 
um, my, my master's thesis is about Serena Williams. Um, and so I, I observed that she is described differently than other athletes. Um, certainly it is no secret that she has experienced outright racism in her career, um, quite historically so in, in some places. And she's spoken out about it um, more than once and, you know, been called horrible names for doing so. So I wanted to look at more subtle instances of racism. Um, So I'm not actually calling you a slur, but I'm definitely talking to you differently. Um, And and sort of my findings from that work um, were that we're about semantic intensity. So what that means is Essentially, Serena Williams gets called the goat um, at like 22. (laughs) Um, And so you are the greatest of all time when you have so much of your career ahead of you still. Yes, you've accomplished wonderful things. Yes, you're an amazing athlete. But why have we reached a ceiling in describing you? Um, and, and part of the conclusion of my research is that people are avoiding saying, and she's black (laughs) when they're describing her. Mm -hmm. So it's like this girl from Compton, she does all of this stuff. She's so great. Um, you know, this player is winning all the time and she's black, right? So they're not saying Mm -hmm. that. So they're saying things like she's unstoppable. She's insatiable. Right. So it's words like that, um, which are like, you're praising someone, (laughs) you know, it's not, it's not inherently negative. It's just that you use those words more often to describe black people than you, or people of color than you do white people. So white athletes are described with like leadership terms, like the ability Mm -hmm. to read plays and they're there. It's about skill. Whereas black athletes are described in like animalistic terms. It's about like raw, innate power. Um, and, and so that's really the, what we're talking about when we're talking about racialization um, is it's not that words are never applied to white people. It's just that they're more often applied to black people. So one example from the corpus, excuse me. One example from the corpus is the word athletic, which we would expect it to be even. We would expect the distribution to be the the way that it works is it it um the the algorithm reports asymmetries or like imbalances. So we would expect athletic to be at zero. Everybody in this corpus is a world world class athlete. But athletic is used like 30% more often in the black um, half of the corpus. Um, and that's because of this thing where we, we talk about black athletes, actual physical power more than their skill. And so it's a word that should be neutral, but it's not because it's racialized. Right. Um, so, so that's one example. Um, racist usage or how this is racist. It's kind of a, a a broader question. Um, I think that it 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 speaks to the why. Um, why do we describe athletes of color differently? Mm-hmm. Because racism exists. 
<laughs> because yeah. racist and um, racial ideologies um, are part of how we order the world and therefore they are part of how we use language. Um, just the same way that, you know, we, we use certain words to describe people who are citizens or non-citizens um, or who are female-bodied or not female-bodied <laughs> um, is, mm -hmm. is, is the, same, the same thing. Yeah, like so. I I've done similar styles of of research. Um, when looking at uh, high school or the player evaluation of high school football athletes, and I know it's very similar, um, sort of phrasing, um, and and diction used in that context. I'd love to hear your take on the practice and the 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 sociolinguistic aspects of player evaluation, or colloquially we call scouting. Um, which you've talked at length about. Um, here we have an example to me of like this total sort of asymmetrical power relation between the observer or the scout on the one hand and the observed, the athletic laborer on the other, where the scout gets to evaluate and make definitive statements about the body and the minds of those athletic laborers with very little accountability, I, I would add. Um, and this, in my view, is a perfect context for the reproduction of racialized understandings of the, the predominantly black body, particularly in the case of football um, and basketball. As a linguist, what do you make of scouting and the so-called, um, quote unquote, expert gaze and its effect on athletic laborers? What an excellent question. I you're absolutely right it is it's it's such it's such a power dynamic where any athlete despite their color is beholden to um behaving in these ways where they will get that good um that good evaluation from a scout right you want you know a pitcher to you know display certain behavior traits um and 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 certainly like the athlete themselves who are looking to be scouted by people from certain certain teams in certain areas are going to play into what they already know a team might need. Uh, I think that it goes um, the 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 gaze of the expert here is very much the same as we see with like black actors or comedians um, or even academics, where like the way um, I sell my skills as a researcher of race, um, is very much like, Hey, I'm a person of color. And because of that, here are all the things I can do. Um, I think that that's, that's the kind of play that a player exhibits when they know they're being watched. Um, that I, I want to look aggressive. I want to look hungry. I want to look, um, you know, toolsy, Right. All this other stuff. And and also when in conversations, um, you know, you've got to be a class act. Right. You have to not um, present any sort of types of stereotypical behavior. So you're not described as like thuggish. Um, it's it's definitely definitely um, the scout has an outsized impact. I, I admit that I don't know as much about scouting in many sports. Um, as I, as I would like to be able to answer this question, but you're right that um, the, the language that we use to discuss 
export in popular media absolutely trickles down to the language with which individual athletes are described. So I, I have a, a corpus of almost 7,000 um, scouting reports if your algorithm is hungry and, and needs um, something <laughs> to chew up. Yeah, we should talk about that. <laughs> that sounds like an awesome collaboration in the making, and I really hope it happens. <laughs> So, so in your interview with Deadspin, you provide a fascinating and a, tr- a truly fascinating quote about the way that players respond to this quoted language, where you say, quote, people have been speaking up about this. The players themselves who are written about have an idea of when language is being used that makes them feel objectified or exoticized because of their race. So there's already this whole population who knows what words they are and what that feels like because they call them out, end quote. Do you have any specific examples of players who have spoken publicly about their responses to the language used about them? So Crystal Dunn-Soubrier, who plays um, in the Women's Soccer League, she recently tweeted um, a number of uh, examples of how this exact kind of racialized language has been used to describe her and her um, actions. And also Joe Adele, um, who's talked about in that Deadspin piece, um, or actually inspired the Deadspin piece, was that he was speaking out about um, the kind of race, this kind of racialized language that's been used to describe him. Um, really, honestly, there's historically too we've seen a number of athletes. Um, Wilma Rudolph is one um, who spoke publicly about about this, um, as did Major Taylor, if you want to go way back. <laughs> um, so it's not just now, it's, it's you know, um, athletes who have really come in contact with a lot of this kind of language have found it worth speaking about um, when they talk about their careers and their lives, um, and also when they speak in front of other athletes of color. So I think that the the contemporary examples are there, but they're they're all over the place. Um, but and that's that's really kind of where I come back to a lot when I do this work is that discrimination is something you feel. Um, and so, I people might not have you know the the technical. Uh, like jargon (laughs) that I do to be able to talk about, well, this is how, you know, semantic change happens. And like a word takes on a new racialized sense and this is what the brain does with it. Right. But they're like, I felt it felt different when you said this about me, you don't say that about all of my peers. Um, And it's, you know, the same, the same conversations that athletes are having are the ones that all black people are having right now um, in lots of different fields, um, astronomy and linguistics and anthropology and archaeology and, you know, all that hashtag black in the ivory. It's like all of these conversations that people are having about this um, is about this is what somebody said about me or how they talk about me or how they describe my performance. And it's different from the way that other people are talked about. And I feel bad when people say this about me, even though I work extra hard to be seen well 
Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm glad that you brought in the other examples like black and the ivory, right? Because it's it's not obvious. I mean, you know that it's not just about not just done in the sports realm, but I think it's really helpful to kind of make those, those comparisons across different sort of uh, fields. Um, so I, to follow up a bit, I was wondering, like, what do you make of athletic laborers and their resistance to these speech games? Um or maybe put a different way, you know, like what for the the examples that you provided of the people who did sort of speak out and call attention to when racialized language used against them, like what impact did it have when Wilma Rudolph and the other people called attention to it? Oh, <laughs> um, well, usually, honestly, they get made fun of. <laughs> Or they get they get told that they're overreacting or they're they're mm-hmm. hypersensitive. Um, it's it's so. Uh, Wilma Rudolph, I mean, she essentially got blackballed by the media for being political. Um, you get uh, the word blackballed too. Anyway, sorry, it has like its own yeah. history. Uh, <laughs> but it's uh, yeah, it it is actually very. It is so hard to speak up about this kind of oppression in particular, because it, again, it's, it's, it's very hard to see in an isolated incident. Um, you know, I have this big data mm-hmm. and I can show you, no, look, it's been going on forever. Um, but, uh, but one yeah, person yeah. saying, well, this person said this, it very much becomes like a, he said, she said, and it, always comes back on the intention of the speaker which i hate um and that's like it's part of it's it's really interesting actually because it's part of how our law is constructed um Mm -hmm. is that we don't like like a hate crime for example is defined by this addition of language of this like you have to be able to show that somebody particularly targeted this group and the way that mm-hmm. they usually do that is with language that singles out a particular group. And so a lot of people will say, well, I didn't mean it that way. And our law says, don't matter. <laughs> you, this person was hurt by it in this, in, in, in like extra hurt by it because, you know, it singled them out. And so it's the impact of the speaker that matters legally when we talk about language and crime, right? Um, but in these, these instances where people say, Hey, you did this. It made me feel singled out. It made me feel different. It felt to me like it was about my race. People usually get away with it by being like, I didn't mean it that way. Mm. And a lot of these things are not negative. So it's like, well, you said I was unstoppable. You called me the goat. (laughs) And that (laughs) was that I felt like that was about my race. Like no one's going to stand up and say, it about the positive stuff about like you described me as a player who had like raw energy and you know like this natural ability and that's different (laughs) from the way you talk about how somebody else plays the game you know it's not um it doesn't feel like it's 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 like it doesn't feel like discrimination (laughs) um to 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 other people who are listening who aren't living in that body yeah, that's that's all great stuff. Um, and really, like, it, frankly, it brings to mind to me, you know, like um, c- 
cultural theory and uh, Roland Barthes and the death of the author, right? This idea that the intentionality of the speaker, why, why does that matter? Like if, if, if you're thinking about like how the academy in at least certain fields like cultural studies approaches any kind of text, I mean, the approach is it does not matter what the author intended, hence the death of the author. It matters what the impact was, right? That's what politics is. It's about what the impact in the world is of those words of speech acts, et cetera, um, and what the impact is on, the, on especially on a marginalized population um, who experiences harm as a consequence of that. And I mean, and, and sport is just, you know, utterly replete with this kind of language. So this is, there could not be a more perfect site. I mean, I even feel like I don't know what the algorithm would say, but like if I'm thinking about basketball, right. And like we call, I, I'm familiar with the kind of scouting lingo, going back to what Derek was talking about in basketball. Uh, and this is true in most sports, like just the very term athleticism itself, I feel has become yeah. a, a pretty profoundly racialized term, right. In terms of how, and this goes back to what you were saying, Kelly, right. There's these sort of these terms around like the leadership or intellect or hard work. Those are all code words for whiteness. And then we have any word that sort of is about embodiment and like what the body is capable of doing and potential rawness, right? All of these words, right? As if like the so-called the, the black athlete was kind of born with natural capabilities that the white athlete is not born with. Um, and so the white athlete tries, struggles to keep up based on their, you know, grasp of the fundamentals and hard work and leadership, right? And it's just, it's just racial essentialism. I mean, it's, it's racism. That's what it is. And you just see it. It's like, this is what the entire discourse of sport um, is sort of constructed with. And one particular example you have um, really dug into was uh, in the piece you wrote for The Undefeated about an altercation between Miles Garrett, and I want to be clear because this is obviously fundamental for our purposes, Miles Garrett, who is black, of the Cleveland Browns, and Kyle Rudolph, who is white, and others from the Pittsburgh Steelers in a November NFL game. Now, I am absolutely not in terribly interested in relitigating the incident itself. And Kelly, by the way, nor I imagine are you. Um, but essentially, it involved Garrett swinging his helmet at Rudolph while being variously impeded and himself bombarded by other Steelers players. I should also note that Garrett has subsequently said, and this is, I think, absolutely critical, um, and, and not just critical, but it, frankly, it should have been assumed from the beginning that he was in fact subjected to a racist slur by Rudolph. Uh, and Garrett subsequently told ESPN, quote, he called me the N-word. He called me a stupid N-word. So obviously, racist language is at the very heart of this incident. And I think a, a bunch of questions really emerge from it. So perhaps first, accepting Garrett at face value, and I want to be really clear here, I do, as a linguist, why do some words hold the social and political power that they do? And I don't mean, why is a word like the N-word racist? Because that's obviously entirely clear. And that's the kind of question people get in bad faith all the time. I'm sure, Kelly, you get that kind of question all the time. So that's absolutely not what I'm asking here. What I mean instead is, why do words have the power of violence? Why do certain words, because of their socio-historical context, elicit such powerful and painful emotional reactions? Why is speech an act and not just words? Oh, yeah. I, uh, I love this question. Speech is an act. 
Um, so for example, I could say, I condemn you to death. <laughs> and that doesn't mean anything in this conversation that we are all having, because I'm not a judge. <laughs> and you are on, all are not on trial, right? And so those two things, right, are, are what we in linguistics call felicity conditions. Um, so an, a, a spe- an, an act of speech, any, any um, uh, element of speech to be understood has to satisfy its given set of felicity conditions, right? And so I can say I condemn you to death all day long, but y'all won't change your lives and don't care and aren't going to the guillotine, right? Um, and so why does a word that is imbued with a hate-filled and racist history um, hurt, right? Why, why do other words hurt um, or uplift, right? Or, 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 or all of the things that we do with language. How do we communicate sincerity? right? How do we communicate all these other things that we do when we talk to other people or write or sign, right? It's not modality constricted, um, <laughs> is um, because of their, their, they have felicity conditions, right? So you don't use a word like the N-word unless you are intending to harm. <laughs> And, and because of that, and that is part of our grammar, it's part of, and, and by grammar, I mean, the system that works inside our minds <laughs> to structure our thoughts and allow us to understand language, right? And so there's something about choosing that word, using that word, that is, I intend to harm you with it, right? Um, and so that's, that's part of the reason why, you know, all speeches and act, right? Like words matter because they are used to have an effect, right? To communicate a truth, to tell someone that you love them, to describe an event, right? So this is, we're talking about sport. Part of why we use the language we use when we talk about an athletic event is so that the the people who were not there, right, um, the 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 ones who did not view the act can imagine it, right? So we can paint this scene of here's what it was like, here's you know the the conflict and the resolution, and it was wonderful, and here's a bunch of terms that indicate embodied experience, so you can know what it felt like to sit in this stadium, right? And so it's even when the language isn't directed specifically to you or describing you specifically and you are part of the wider audience it is crafted in such a way that you can experience it bodily um which seems like maybe like mysticism or something (laughs) but (laughs) that's that's very much how language works and when when you start to think about it when you start to think about the way that you describe something to a friend like like going to the store or a car accident or anything, you know, the the way that you're telling someone about an event is so that they can know, like, this is how I felt. 
um, or this is how it felt to do X. Like when you go on vacation and you're like, I was walking up to the Acropolis and it was at dawn and it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. It's like you add in detail so that somebody can know what it feels like because using language is about feeling something. <laughs> Sorry, I'm all excited about it because it, <laughs> the brain is amazing that way, right? It's mm -hmm. that we can take symbols, essentially, sound symbols, written symbols, and tr and trans um deuce tr and 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 transduce that into lived experience now i want i want to return to a concept that you mentioned earlier because you do a beautiful job in describing the concept of semantic intensity in in the article that we uh referenced writing it is when people choose a word that elevates the seriousness of the events that they are describing. It is a cousin of a hyperbole. We increase intensity all the time when we describe something because of how we feel about it. And I think this is what you're kind of talking about here. When we say that um, singer Cher is ageless or that pizza is sacred. But in this case, people are increasing the intensity of these descriptions in part because of their implicit racial biases. Obviously, we all engage in semantic intensity at times, like you're mentioning, even talking about a vacation, um, no doubt, mostly without us knowing or acknowledging, but rather um, because of the effective dimensions to speech. Is the issue here that we need to, to be better at the regulation of semantic intensity or simply an understanding of the racist biases that underlie that intensity? Yes, I would say it's the latter. So part of why racialization is a thing goes back to race is a thing, <laughs> right? We, we have this idea of race that people whose bodies are different colors share different cultural experiences, but more so share character traits and uh you know are sort of beholden to a given set of stereotypes um that informs how we describe anything right like i know what pencils are <laughs> because i've had experiences with many pencils <laughs> i'm not going to describe them using words that don't have anything to do with pencils for instance words that i would use to describe ink right um that's how our brain works we categorize things it that's that's what perception is is pattern matching with all of our senses so we know how to actually physically move about the world but also move about the world <laughs> and uh so i think that being aware that our mind is taking those shortcuts for us right that if we've consumed media and listened to other people talk and were raised in a certain way, we have implicit biases. Um, they're not inherently negative just because they're implicit. This is part of our low level sort of categorization. Um, but that we can be intentional about that. 
it mm-hmm. this this is the kind of thing like I liken it to breathing <laughs> because we're going to just breathe. Our lungs are just going to work. We don't have to think about them, but I can also stop and take a deep breath. Right? <laughs> I can take control of that system and say we're going to do something different for a moment and then you can just go back to passively working. That is exactly what we do in our minds when we're intentional about our language use. So if people are sitting down to write stories about certain athletes, you know, it is take the extra moment to ask yourself, what kind of words am I using? And, you know, do is it because I, I wasn't, I, this person is raced, you know, and, and white is a race. So it's not mm-hmm. just talking about black people, right? Did I describe, did I not, did I use the word skill even once in this, you know, article to just, you know, maybe have a list of things for yourself to sort of to check in the same way that we might um, think about gender, nationality, um, to just be a little more intentional with that, take over the system and, and say, all right, let's, let's write with purpose now, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, what, what, you're making me think of here is another aspect of this Garrett story that received almost no attention at the time. Um, It happened shortly before he was himself the victim of violence in an absolutely bizarre incident in which a fan who approached his vehicle, this is even hard for me to conceptualize how this could possibly have happened. This fan approached his vehicle, which was apparently stopped in traffic at the time. Okay, it must have been like you know some kind of gridlock, uh, not on a highway, I guess. Uh, the fan knew who he was, came up to the window of his car, and asked him for asked him for an autograph through the window of his car, and he obliged generously. And then the fan punched him in the face, and then ran away from the scene. Now. To me, what, what I'm trying to get at with this example is that it sort of speaks to the way that within white supremacy, race frames the way that certain bodies repel the discursive designations of violence, right? So like, this is what you were saying, Kelly. Whiteness, as you say, is a race, but the fan, Rudolph, right? Like, terms around violence don't really stick to them in the same way, to those types of bodies. Well, others relentlessly attract those kind of designations, i.e. Garrett, right? This, like, this, this way of describing as criminal, as fundamentally violent. Like that is, that is attached to blackness in a kind of, in a way we use language, in the way that we collectively as a society use language. Would you say that one of the reasons then that we need to be attentive to language is the is this kind of dehumanizing function then? Like, cause that's what I kind of see happening here is that like Garrett is fundamentally dehumanized. He's not allowed to be hurt because somehow he's immune to that. Um, it doesn't matter if a fan hurts him, but then when he is perceived as an aggressor, it, be, it, it kind of consumes his entire identity. And that to me is dehumanizing. Yes, you're absolutely right. It is very much that, dynamism um, that is simply not allowed for people of color. We see this happen in all sorts of, you know, aspects. Um, But yeah, especially 
this is this is part of the reason why I think it's so important to be purposeful um, because we these these prevailing ideas about people like so black people as a monolith which they are not <laughs> right are described as aggressive as violent as you know as as naturally prone to violence right or um, violent displays of like physical prowess right and this this has its history rooted in you know like mandingo fighting on slave yards right like black people put together i mean we've all seen django unchained right um so this it has such a deep and long history a history as old as the construction of blackness itself in this country um is this association with violence which means there is there are so few occurrences where blackness is mentioned where that idea is not simultaneously invoked and that's that's part of how our brain works I, I keep bringing it back to this but it's like these concepts are associated in our mind and so even if it's not high in your con like your conscious awareness that like I'm thinking about blackness so I'm also thinking about violence that violence like neuron is firing <laughs> it may not be the volume might not be turned up but it's on right it's switched on and so that means and and that switching on strengthens the association right and so it, this is the this is why we sort of don't have to refresh those ideas every generation that they are cumulative over time um is because the associations get stronger but it also means that you can you can strengthen that an inhibitory connection as well right so you could imagine a world where you hear blackness and violence is never turned on. Um, we, we've seen this happen with women. Um, the way that women have been traditionally described throughout history has been, you know, weak and stupid and, you know, just all of these different things that, you know, we used to, I mean, it's not that people don't think that about women. Certainly misogyny exists. Um, but those associations are not as strong as they used to be because women have been doing stuff and have agency and independence in many places in the world now. And that's been going on for some time. And we work hard to describe women differently now, right? Because we are trying to strengthen the associations of, you know, femininity with strength and intelligence, et cetera, et cetera, agency, right? Um, and so it's those associations are strong now but they're not forever right they were built and so they can be taken apart um which is why we you know i encourage people to work a little harder <laughs> um and and that every time you do it quote right um you it makes a difference it, it's part of a, a whole um so that that's just utterly brilliant um i think like we can all we can all agree i i'm reminded 
of or you're talking a lot about associations about how language actually kind of gives us these implicit or I, I think like maybe even we can we can argue also explicit associations between certain bodies and certain types of behavior. In this case, you really see the association of the black body with um, criminality and the criminal justice system as a whole um, to treat treating something as criminal or calling something um, criminal in the sporting world is actually making an association that extends far beyond sports. Like calling a certain player a criminal and saying that person should be, you know, uh, penalized or even brought into the criminal justice system is very explicitly making a connection between that person and crime and punishment and discourses of crime and punishment. How do you see that specific element of the association between the black body and the criminal justice system playing out in this case? Yeah, I think, I mean, if, yeah, with, with Miles Garrett, I mean, specifically, it's like, they jumped straight to criminal. I mean, that's the thing. It's like zero to a hundred. It's not like he wasn't a rule breaker. <laughs> he wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't the, the, the talk of, of penalization and punishment wasn't confined to the game itself which we there are plenty of other sports that are hella violent right mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. um hockey right <laughs> like whatever <laughs> i mean this and this is the example people often throw at me of like right like there are sports where the violence is part of it obviously football is one of them um and there are lots of violent acts that go on in the game there are lots of rule breaking acts that go on in the game that are addressed within the play of the game yeah. But his act was instantly, you know, elevated to, like you said, like outside of the sport. Let's take you to court over this. Let's take you to, you know, this, this, these higher authorities. Um, mm -hmm. It's the same thing that we see happening when a nine-year-old girl doesn't tuck her shirt in at school and gets pulled by her hair, you know, um, out of the building and into a cop car, right? Like, like that happens um, because of that these associations are so strong that any time, you know, a, um, a person of color is not, um, you know, playing by the rules, which again are like moving goalposts, um, you know, they, they can, their freedom can be immediately taken away. Um, and, the, and that the elevation to that kind of response is, is expected, um, if not common. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I'm immediately reminded of, uh, so like rule breaking in general in football, like we didn't see Tom Brady when he deflated footballs called a, a criminal. Um, and I think we see that in a variety of sports. So some of my work has looked at, um, hockey and hockey is, a. Uh, I'll be completely frank here is a racist sport, I would argue amongst the most racist sports. And we see some of this same language come out in a racialized way, even in hockey, when like 99% of players are white. But yet, Chris Simon, who is an, an indigenous an indigenous person, um, was immediately or has been immediately called a thug um, and immediately called a criminal the second he does this or he does acts of violence um, in hockey. So I think like 
what you're talking about actually extends far beyond um, the NFL and it actually pervades our entire sporting landscape. So I don't, I don't even have a, like a question there. I just like, um, maybe I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts generally about other sports. Do you have um, sort of inclinations or um, have you thought about how this like plays out in sports like hockey or a variety of, of other sports? Yeah. So there's a number of sports that are represented in my corpus. Um, everything from bowling to fencing, um, right. Cycling. Um, right. Um, and then all of the big team sports. Um, so yeah, there, none of them are exempt from this kind of language use. Um, although certainly, um, these elevations to to violence and criminality are not necessarily part of what we see. Like, for example, um, the word acquitted yes. um, <laughs> only appears in the Black Subcorpus. It's, it's, a hun- it's, a, it's one of the few words that is 100% imbalanced in either direction. Um, while there are white players <laughs> um, who have absolutely been acquitted of crimes in this corpus, um, it is not discussed in the popular media. <laughs> um, and if it is, those words are not used. You get cleared of all charges or something else, right? And so these words that are very specifically um, related to the criminal justice system and, and criminality are, are certainly uh, are used more often, right? Or, or all the time for one group and never for the other. I think that, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that we see in across all sports, um, that that sort of asymmetric usage is really not confined to um, any particular like act of play. Absolutely. Wow. I'm just I'm just sitting here um, and learning so much from you. And also Derek's question, I'm just like totally letting it all sink in and sort of um, trying to um, sort of keep up with everything you're saying. But it's, it's so fascinating. And, you know, I, I wanted to return to something that you talked about earlier about um, how we need to be more like intentional about our language and sort of be, be be aware of sort of the language that we're using and not sort of reverting to, you know, I would say like the stereotypes, but as you're saying, the sort of connection, the ra- racist connections that we have in our brains. And um, at the end of your uh, piece for The Defeated, you, you provide some really interesting suggestions for how we as fans could better react when we see incidents um, like the one we discussed earlier while watching sports. Um, and I would love to hear you expand a bit more on your suggestions. And, and for example, you mentioned empathy. And I'll just say like in a lot of my history classes, I really try to emphasize with students the need to express like historical empathy um, for predominantly like communities of color. I'm not usually advocating for expressing sympathy for white folks because it's the the history is pretty damning. Um, But I guess I was sort of wondering like, to what extent do you think empathy is enough? Yeah, I don't, um, I don't know that it's enough, but I do think that it is a good first step. Um, I, this goes back to my comment about discrimination being something that you feel. Um, and while, mm-hmm. you know, when a person says, they said this about me and it's, it's different than the way they talk about other people. Um, and, and, you know, people's reaction is like, no, you're blowing that out of proportion. You're overreacting. You're this mm-hmm. or that. Mm-hmm. I think that 
that's where the empathy comes in. So maybe not as much on the usage side, but on, you know, the, the people who are, are listening and, and seeing this language. Um, I, we've all been hurt by something that someone said. I mean, no, I mean, what charmed life, the person who's never been hurt um, by, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's very easy to take things personally, right? I mean, we, we do that. That's part of the embodied experience of being a communicator. Um, and, and, you know, so we know what that feels like, right? And so anyone who is communicating that sort of feeling, I think that, you know, we, we owe it to them to be, to empathize, right? To give them the benefit of the doubt, to say, maybe I don't see it, but you're saying you were hurt by that. And I know what being hurt by language feels like. So I'm going to at least hear you out, mm. right? I'm going to maybe think mm. the next time I see a Black person called a criminal and be like, are they really a criminal? Or are we just saying that? Mm. Because we like to say that about Black people, Right. In the same way, you know, we do with we do with other things. Um, and so I think that that's part of it is calling it out when we see it, taking the time to ask ourselves, is this really what happened or is this how we're describing it? Yeah. It's a lot of work, um, you know, you to to like change the way we associate things. I mean, we see this now in the gender has changed so much um it's changed so much mm -hmm. in you know just a handful of years about how we describe people and how we think about bodies and the way we use pronouns right i mean that is work it's work every single time we we think about it and we use it because we we grew up in in a way that it, it was different um and so like that for a lot of people has been has been very effortful, right? Um, but empathy is the base of that, right? Of like, I don't want to be called something I'm not. I can understand what that feels like when somebody gets my name wrong or they they think I'm somebody else. I know what that feels like and I don't want other people to feel that way. So I'm going to work harder, <laughs> you know? It's, it's the same thing. Yeah, no, I think that's such a fantastic and like very multi-dimensional mm -hmm. answer. <laughs> so thank you so much for that. And I, I really appreciate your use of the word effortful. <laughs> You know, I was thinking, I, I've never used that word before, but I think it's so, I think it's so accurate because if you said it takes a lot of work, but we, you know, we tend to think of effort as a good thing. So it's kind of like work in a positive way. Um, and, you know, so, so this article got a ton, a ton of traction. Um, to what extent was there any backlash? Um, how did readers in such a mainstream venue kind of take it up or how did they react to it? Yeah, uh, I got death threats. No, no. Uh, somebody emailed me and said I should be raped to death, as a matter of fact. Um, yeah. Holy cow. So, so um, I honestly wow. didn't read the comments. <laughs> um, I knew it was going to be bad. Uh, actually, the people at ESPN told me that, it, that I probably shouldn't read the comments. Um, and so, yeah, um, I had, there were a lot of negative reactions um, to the piece, especially because the event was so charged. People were talking about it. Um, everybody was on like one side or another. So many people were saying like, this was criminal. <laughs> you know, I described yeah. this as criminal because 
it was criminal. And that, and also like that, and also the, the response of they talk about white people this way too. And so that's kind of the thing of like, Mm -hmm. racialization isn't about never a word never being used to describe another group of people it's just it's more often used to describe Mm -hmm. a certain group of people in a certain set of circumstances and so that's one thing that I just like have been working ever since that piece came out to clarify every time I talk about this work is like it's not never (laughs) like we rarely in science like right we rarely deal in absolutes it's not it's not something we look at and and yeah and that like this incident was criminal that's why I called it that so it's like that okay you describe things as they are always and you've never added in any like associations to anything ever even once you're just reporting events as they appear um but that's the thing is we don't actually see things that way. <laughs> like our, our biases, which like, I say that word and people think it's a bad thing, but like, like we only see one, like a part of the visual color spectrum, right? Like we can't see ultraviolet light. That's a bias in our perception, <laughs> right? Is like, mm-hmm. we only see some parts of it. We're constrained to only perceive like some parts of it. Ideology works in the same way. So like we see things and we perceive things and we, we, we focus in on some parts of the action and other parts is just background noise. And that's the thing is like when, when these incidents of like, it was criminal, that's why I called it criminal. Well, that was part is, is flexible by individual positionality. It was criminal to you. Mm-hmm. right yeah. not mm-hmm. not as an actual act itself but the way you perceived it was that way so like it's 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 that mm-hmm. extra step of you thought that right um not everyone thinks that yeah. thinks that you know and so like when people say like opinions are valid like yes but it, it really is you know it's it's perceptions that are that are what's behind that and yeah um I did, though, however, this this man who has a YouTube channel um, who likes to talk about like replays <laughs> on it, mm. um, he sent me just mm. the nicest message I think I've ever gotten about how like wow. grateful he was to see someone writing about this and not actually picking apart what happened over and over again, that like there was one piece of coverage <sighs> that was just talking about what we said. And, and, and what it meant in a wider conversation. And it, I was like, I cried. I'm going to cry right now. <laughs> it was so kind. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. I'm just, I'm, I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of stunned. Um, so I guess, so you, you mentioned how the editors told you not to read the yeah. comments. Is that correct? D- did they, how do I say this? Did they have any sense of how people might react to this? Like, was there any kind of coaching that they gave to you about any of this, um, how to handle it, what to do, or was it kind of in the aftermath that they were like, Oh, by the way, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dive into Yeah. So it was like the person I was working with, she sort of just said like, all right, this is going to go live in the morning. And I just want to, cause she knew that I had, I hadn't written for an outlet this large before. 
And she was like, I just want you to know, you know, all of our stories kind of get, you know, polarizing all of the stories for the undefeated get like polarizing comments. Um, But she was like, you might want to just let it sit for a few days um, or, you know, read it when you're not alone. Is sort of what she said, you know, in the same way that we talk about like uh, reading your teaching evaluation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah, It's like be in the right space (laughs) um, (laughs) to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I'm just like, I'm I'm just still stunned. And and I, you know, I, I know we all have colleagues who do work that places them in a situation where like people have reactions and they receive death threats. I guess I've just been very fortunate. My research matters so little that like, I don't, I don't get those, but so I'm, I am just, I'm really sorry. Um, and I, and I, it makes me wonder too, like, you know, if, if a man had written that, you know, what mm-hmm. kind of responses might, might the man have gotten compared to you? I mean, that's, that's to some extent, no, a guessing game, that, but that's right. No, um, no Johanna, just, that's right. Wow. Um, I, I don't think that's just a guessing game. Like I'll say I have never written for a venue, uh, the size of the undefeated. And that's a fact. And I think that you pointed that out. Well, Kelly, that's, that's an important factor. It's a factor, but I have never received even a shred of the degree of magnitude of like violently, you know, just hateful response that you did. Um, like nothing like that. People have called out my popular work, like in the sense that they say like, this is garbage. Or, this guy doesn't know anything about sports, whatever, like blah, 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 making fun of like whatever socialist politics or Marxist politics or whatever. Um, but like, but like literally nothing that even remotely hurt my feelings. I would, I would honestly say that. No, I'm not trying to like put on a tough veneer. Like I literally have not had my feelings hurt by a public comment on anything I've written that tends to go against the grain when it comes to popular interpretations of sport, right? I'm almost always writing things that people don't want to hear. And I have never got a comment that even hurt my feelings. So I, I think, Johanna, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, like white masculinity in terms of like my authorship is a factor in that and, and has like an impact on the kind of experience. And that's yet another way in which, you know, we can kind of consider you know, speech acts, I suppose. Um, but I, I want to actually, because I'm, now I'm thinking about this, we're also talking in the context of, you know, social upheaval that has everything to do with race um, and white supremacy and violence and all the themes that we've been covering. Um, and with respect to this issue of policing, which is at the core of everything that's, that's being protested and resisted and challenged, um, there's been a lot of discussion of late about the fact that the solution it, for people who are really serious about it, I'm not talking about, you know, co-optation or anything like that. No, I'm talking about people that like we would respect in terms of wanting to legitimately challenge the status quo and produce a new kind of society, a new understanding of what policing might mean. And that includes the abolition of policing. Um, people who speak in that vein don't think, for instance, that the solution is implicit bias training, right? Which I'm bringing up because I actually think that it really intersects with some of what we're talking about in terms of like how we use language, right? But rather those critiques would say, I think significantly that the entire structure of, excuse me, the entire structure of the carceral state is built on a white supremacist foundation, which then in turn means that biases are not so much implicit, but explicit and profoundly violent Mm -hmm. it seems to me then that this issue could apply to the sport industrial complex that we're talking about here as well 
Mason Rudolph, if indeed he said the N-word, would be just one example, right? So too could be many journalists, et cetera, who write about sport, talk about sport. Um, you know, college basketball seems to have plenty, for instance. So if in fact that is the case, what is the role of sociolinguistics in intervening in that set of material relations? Yeah, um, that's, a, that's an excellent, excellent question. Um, I, I do think implicit bias training is important. I don't know that that is anything that is worth anyone's time when we're talking about policing as bad as it is now. Mm, <laughs> Our criminal yeah. justice system needs reform the end. <laughs> um, but, you know, when we look at other institutions, right, um, you know, like, like sports organizations or academia, um, and we start to ask, you know, how can we change the way we interface with various publics? Um, obviously, language is a part of that. It's certainly a part of crafting like statements of solidarity that we've been seeing sort of pouring out of, you know, lots of different places. Um, the NFL's hilarious. Um, <laughs> but I think that those sorts of conversations, um, I, I would I would love to see people consult linguists. Um, that sounds very self-serving, but we've been doing this kind of research for a really long time. And this is what we do. We think about how words have individual histories and how they move through the world and who has the right to say them. Um, and, and, um, you know, who has ownership over certain terms, right? I mean, this is like whole people's like lives and careers are dedicated to these exact issues. And so I would love to see um, people consulting um, with linguists, especially when they're thinking about their everyday ways of doing things, um, about what inclusion actually looks like. I mean, you could line up diversity, equity, and inclusion statements from every organization you could think of, and I guarantee you 95% of them won't mention language. It's yeah. not in there. <laughs> um, ling linguistic justice is a very new concept. Um, and yet it has impacts in essentially every institution, housing, healthcare, um, banking, right? Like <laughs> it's, it's all, it's all there. Um, and it's not just about the way we use language, but it like to describe other people, but also the way people sound and the kinds of, of varieties they have access to. And so I think when we're sitting people down and we're talking to them about um, implicit bias, um, I would love to have linguists be part of um, the 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 construction of of those those materials, like right? of like the okay, we're going to train you, you know, have a lesson on language, <laughs> be part of that training. Um, and, and do it in more than an afternoon, you know, I mean, it, mm -hmm. I think so much about how we talk about like sexual harassment. Um, and so like everyone at an organization has to sit down and click through a bunch of screens and be like, all right, I'm not going to touch anyone weird. Um, mm -hmm. 
<laughs> and that's like, that's not enough. <laughs> it's not enough to give it 30 minutes, no, you know, because no. again, it's like, it's the effort of doing things differently every day. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I, I, I hope that more people will begin thinking about, about language in these conversations of, of, of equity. Yeah. I, th I think you're, you're speaking our language and this, this idea of linguistic justice is, is so important. Language is everything and the ways in which we talk about things and the ways in which we represent things through language is so powerful and so fundamental to everything we do that we absolutely need to have discussions about the words and the choice of words that we use when we talk about almost anything, because um, for all of the reasons you've pointed out, it, it's massively important. One of the things that I'm really thinking about is like detractors from um, your work and like some of this, honestly, to be completely honest, comes from my own take of like being a critical sociologist of sport and, and, and having detractors be like, well, like, what are you talking about? You want to cancel all sport? You want sport to end? Like, that's not really what we're getting at. But I think we all know sports fans, sports coaches, and even athletes themselves who would say that examining language in the specific way that that you've talked about is simply part of this sort of leftist, quote unquote, cancel or call out culture. From your perspective and with your vast expertise, what suggestions do you have for how we might respond to these statements in a way that speaks directly to the issue of racist coded language? Yeah, I think that sort of what my data shows, um, and like that's another thing is like, we've got numbers, like you want receipts? Like we, like, we, we have them. Um, there's a lot of research out there that shows that this stuff is real, that it's not just mm. something felt in one you know, interaction, it's like, it, these, this, this phenomenon has a history, right? And so I think, um, so, so the data shows that it is, it really is an asymmetry, right? It's not that it never is used to describe other people, right? Like, it, it's just that it's rarely used, <laughs> you know, these words are rarely yeah. applied to other groups. So that means just do, just describe a white person as being <laughs> raw, <laughs> And then describe a black person as being like really skilled. I mean, that's the thing is like, we can correct an imbalance. It's not hard, you know, just, yeah. just be a little more even about the way that you're describing stuff and actually think about, you know, what went into that action that I just witnessed, you know, like, again, like these are people, they're all, you know, pardon the pun, like at the top of their game, like, this is what it, you know, this is what we're doing. We're talking about world-class athletes all the time. All of these people have dedicated large portions of their lives and, and you know, um, inordinate amount of resources to get where they are. Um, they're all incredible in their own right. And they, they deserve to be spoken about in such a way. Um, and so I think that's really it is like just, you know, for every time, you know, somebody <laughs> writes raw about one player, you've got to, you got to spread it around. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, and also like, <laughs> that's the thing too, is there are plenty of white players that have like incredible physical gifts. Again, we're not, you know, we, we aren't focused on that. And it's like, they, they work, they do work hard to, to, to like overcome, 
you know, that kind of assumption that you've got to train, you've got to do this, you've got to do blah, 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 because you're just going to have black people who walk on the field and are amazing forever. It's like, you know, you, you, those imbalances are easily corrected. I mean, I say easy. I'm like, go journalist and fix everything you've ever written. (laughs) 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 But, but, um, you know, it's just, if we start now, then we'll get there. Changes little by little, hopefully if they read your work, right. (laughs) Um, so we would love to talk to hear a little bit more about your personal experiences in higher ed and with sport. And so we'll sort of ask both about your ideas about grad student labor and sort of athletic labors. Um, now we know that like grad students have been organizing for years and are especially now being put on the front lines because of the pandemic at times when faculty are sort of not willing to stick their necks out, their necks out. Um, so what do you think about labor and higher ed? Um, what do you think of campus athletic workers? And have you had an opportunity to teach athletic laborers? Yes. So I, um, I have had the privilege of teaching at two large uh, public institutions. I did my master's at the University of Kentucky, um, huge, huge <laughs> sports school too. Um, and so... I have absolutely had uh, student athletes in my classroom. Um, I am very aware of the pressures that they face um, outside of academics. Um, It is, it is unconscionable (laughs) to me um, because of how I guess I align um, that their labor is not monetarily compensated um uh for for any number of reasons that that used to be for me the the my feeling on that used to be about the physical demands that are placed upon them um that they sacrifice their bodies for our entertainment and that that sacrifice nets um incredible monetary gains for uh academic institutions and and therefore they should they should absolutely be compensated uh, more than that the you know the rights to their own likeness um, <laughs> that are used to, yeah. you know, merchandise and, and advertise. Um, and I think that students are much more aware of that than perhaps they used to be that I haven't been in the classroom that long, just five years, but I, I, I do, um, you know, I, my students wanted to talk about this. My students who, who were athletes and who weren't athletes wanted to talk about this. They wanted to write projects about this. They wanted to advocate for this on our campus. Um, I, I see that they are very interested in in it, and especially um, uh, the female athletes that I have worked with. Um, just talking about uh, particular risks, um, like for example, um, uh, women's soccer plays on turf, and because of that, they get exposed to more chemicals <laughs> than um, uh, men who play on grass and uh, and therefore their health is at a, a, a significantly higher risk. Um, I, that and that and, and, you know, the whole like being an amateur and not being able to accept, you know, the kinds of like deals and endorsements that might come to you because you're still an amateur. I just think that there, there are so many barriers to compensation for an inordinate amount of labor um, that it is, it is entirely, it is, um, 
it's disgusting. <laughs> Sorry. I, uh, uh, I get really worked up about it because these people, you know, when I see them, I'm trying to be like, okay, okay, but let's talk about phonology. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> we still have to learn, you know, and it's, it's, yeah. it's makes it very hard for me to do my job in, um, you know, an honest way of like, I'm trying to prepare you, you know, I'm trying to give you an education where it's like, you don't need a teacher right now, you need an advocate. Um, and it, and it, it puts me, it puts me in a, in a delicate position, um, mainly because I am still a graduate student. Mm-hmm. And so my own position is precarious. <laughs> I need an advocate. <laughs> um, yeah. And so it's, so it's very difficult. And so I went from an organization that had no unions um, that, that, that I was not supported by a union, um, in my years at the University of Kentucky, um, moving to the University of Michigan, which has the oldest student union in the country. And so now I'm in a position to understand, um, what all needs to be, um, written into a contract and what we have to, what we have to protect our rights and access as the largest um, working body in the university. Like graduate students and contingent faculty do most of the teaching at an R1 institution. And, and so, and, and we do it at, you know, a ridiculously reduced cost, right? I mean, people, my, my tuition is astronomical you know, upwards of $20,000. And that is what I get, you know, they pay my tuition for me teaching. But somebody else who's not a student gets paid three times that to do the exact same work I do, (laughs) um, or less work than the work I do. And so they get my labor at a considerable discount. um, Which is, you know, so it it really, um, and, and I am beholden to my advisors and, you know, the, the graduate school and all of this to, to become successful, to, to finish my, my degree. Right. So there's only so much wave making that any one graduate student um, or teacher advocate can do on behalf of their students. Um, so, it, and, and because we're the ones who are doing most of the teaching, then a lot of those voices are silenced because of those power dynamics. That is so, so beautifully said. Um, and boy, are we in solidarity with literally every single position you articulated there. Uh, absolute <laughs> solidarity because, uh, yeah, like you, we, we see the system as uh, disgraceful and hyper-exploitative uh, and grad students really bear the cost in a way that I think that people outside of higher education just don't understand. Um, and contingent faculty as well, uh, in precisely the ways that you were describing. And, and honestly, when you name the two, I mean, just the, the just the mathematical calculation. Because I, you know, I have to come back to the fact that I'm a I'm a Canadian and I went to university in Canada. And you know, the way it worked for us is that you know we'd have a funding package potentially, and it's complicated. But like our tuition, and again, like graduate tuition is bullshit, obviously, right? I mean, it's just a way of clawing back your wages. Um, so. The higher the number is, the more outrageously exploitative. Um, but like we were talking about, let's say $6,000, let's say, or something for the year, right? So if we had an actual funding package, people could, under some circumstances, like scrape by with something to live on. But I mean, if they're, scraping, if they're clawing back $20,000 from you, um, 
just you know how, how do people live it's a, it's a, and we see before the pandemic we saw in california right in santa cruz it's exactly what graduate students were saying it's literally impossible for us to live we are homeless we are living 3 hours away from campus at one of the most affluent universities in a very affluent state uh, and we can't survive. And it's possible for you to build the kind of political economy of this institution precisely because we can't survive. So, you know, I'm just out here ranting now about uh, the same issue because it's, you know, it's blood boiling. But I, I actually had wanted to circle back around to what you said about the teaching piece, because I really relate to you, Kelly. And, and I, again, I didn't have this experience when I was a graduate student in Canada. Uh, you know, and I had been teaching for a long time in Canada, we never had dynamics like this. It wasn't the same. The, the demands on the players were not the same. It was just a totally different kind of context. So I wasn't used to the experience of having athletes with those kind of demands on their plate in my class. And um, so, you know, so it was new to me at Duke. And, and what I found, like you, could, you can see it with some of the athletes you have in your classes, like what you can literally see in front of you the toll that their lives are taking on them because it's just not possible for them to be physically, emotionally, and intellectually present in the way it is for some of their peers at all times, because it's not possible for any human being to be present in that way when subjected to the kind of demands that they are. Um, and it's extra painful, exactly as you've been articulating, because the education is their wage, literally. That's actually what the university says. We are giving you this education in return for what you're doing for us on the playing field, right? So to watch the student struggle in the classroom is really painful because they're, they're losing every way you cut it, right? Everywhere you slice it. And frankly, what most faculty do is compound it by blaming the students, the athletes in this case. They blame yeah. them. So actually yeah. they don't get an education and they're treated as some kind of miscreant in the classroom, uh, some kind of problem to be solved. So I, honestly, like you're in an impossible situation, as you've explained. So I, I'm not trying to say like, you, you must have all the answers, Kelly. Um, no, no one can have all the answers. And least of all, you should be expected to. But I'm just curious, like one thing that I've started doing is literally taking aside. And I, by the way, I am a contingent faculty member. I sort of, I'm a semi-contingent. I have some kind of renewability, but I'm certainly not on tenure track. So, you know, a little bit walking a line, but somewhat comparable, but it's not the same. And it's, I'm just trying to sit, whatever, put that out there. What I've started doing is I'll often take the athletes aside and sort of honestly just walk them through this exact dynamic. But we have the privilege in my classes of we're talking about labor and sport, right? So it's not weird because this is what we were talking about in class before I took the student aside was this exact issue potentially. So if I, if I take a student aside to talk about it, right, there's all the context in the world to have a kind of conversation about like, listen, I, I understand why you're suffering here. I understand why this is impossible for you. But how can we kind of like try to get a little bit more, like be a little bit more present because otherwise you lose in every way, right? How have you, I just, I'm just curious because we're all, honestly, we're all brainstorming here. We don't have these conversations in U.S. institutions of higher education. We don't talk about this. If we talk about this, we talk about it as how do we solve the problem of the disengaged athlete who doesn't give enough effort, right? That's how it's talked about. We don't have a constructive conversation about how to actually support the hyper-exploited college students and campus athletic workers in front of us. So I'm just curious how, how you've tried to handle it, Kelly. Yeah. So I guess I just like that, that idea of, you know, the checked out, you know, or disengaged like athletic student is so real and I hate it so much. 
Um, part, part of it is because like, I have had exception, exceptional students who are athletes. Um, mm-hmm. And honestly, perhaps more engaged than some of my other students, right? Because exactly this, their, their participation in professional sports is their ticket out of poverty. And because of that, they are committed to doing everything that they possibly can to get there, which means abusing their bodies, which means, you know, but it also means sitting in my classroom and trying to learn everything they can about phonology, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I actually do not teach phonology. I don't know why I keep saying that. (laughs) Um, But that's the thing is like, they're very dedicated because they know that their performance in the classroom, um, you know, can could keep them from being on the field and they want to be on the field. And while certainly there are athletes who take very easy curriculum, right? Not all of them, right, are, are doing that. And they are absolutely sometimes, you know, singled out or, or, uh, viewed more harshly by lots of faculty members in different in different classrooms. And so part of the work I've done as a teacher of writing and a teacher of linguistics um, has very much been focusing on what's important to my students. I mm-hmm. um, the work that I do is very much focused on critical inquiry and like self-reflective critique. And so I can't I can't know what topics um, matter to the people in my classroom. And so I leave room (laughs) for us to discover what parts of language are interesting to you. What are things that you want to advocate for? Great. Let's talk about how we build a good argument. Let's, you know, put together a YouTube video. Let's make a podcast. That, that's what I've been actually teaching is podcasting. <laughs> um, oh, so it's, uh, you know, put because voices, right? So mm-hmm. use your voice, talk about something that matters. And so for a lot of students, this is what matters because this is what they're living. Um, and these are the pressures. This is what is on their mind when they lay down at night is, I've got to be able to provide for my family. I've got to be able to live a better life than my parents lived. Um, I've got to be able to X, Y, and Z. I want to, you know, be like, have a self-determined existence, <laughs> right? And, and so it's, it's, I think what I try to do for all of my students um, is to give them space to work with those ideas. Um, and to, you know, critically engage with the language that is around them, um, in particular, the way that they are described. So we talk about like how students are described. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it's, um, it is very much a challenge. And it's a challenge to sort of mold those tasks um, into, you know, a wider sort of learning objectives that you yourself didn't write. Right. So like I'm not full time faculty. I don't have the freedom to create a course of my own from scratch. I have to teach some other planned thing and try and turn that into something meaningful in, in a way that I can serve the students who come to my class. Um, and so that's that it, it is very difficult. And I just want to mention that this thing of, oh, you get your education 
like that's what we pay you with um that's the same lie that the military tells you yeah <laughs> right yeah. of just mm-hmm. defend our country mm-hmm. and then you get to go to school man like it's like <laughs> you know it's like yeah, yeah but yeah. you've got ptsd and you can't sit i mean i say yeah. that like flippantly but the very first thing that i did as an academic was work as a liaison with the va in an academic advising um office and so like those students can't pay attention either. They have yeah. all of these different challenges, a whole set of challenges for the veteran population, right? And so it's not only student athletes that are exploited this way. Um, and, and, it's, and so when you start to look at all these different populations of students, um, international students, uh, uh, people who are brought in who, who grew up in poverty, you know, like all these different ways that we sort of think about diversity and inclusion, each one of those groups then becomes, you know, similarly, similarly exploited. <laughs> um, and, and the university sort of turns into profit, um, which is really horrible. Um, and yet I still feel that um, it is these moments in the classroom um, where I am able to turn to students and say, you have the ability to be critical. You have the ability to look at these systems mm-hmm find what you don't think is working and take it apart that is what your education affords you are the tools to engage in that and and to be able to do that work is what keeps me in the university it's what keeps me in the academy um it's it's why i'm still allowing myself to be exploited in this way because i i do believe um that education is liberating. Love it. And and, like, I don't love all all of the harms that you've talked about and and all of these comparisons, which are so obviously on point, Um, like this comparison between athletic laborers and even like precarious laborers and uh, military, like the ways in which people can justify exploitation, it's so on point. And you sound like you are doing your students such a, ser- a service and, and and doing so much for developing critical thinking and, and in interesting ways. And I'm also myself a fan of bringing in like podcasting um, into the classroom and, and giving students voices in different ways so that they can um, engage in the learning process um, outside of the, the sort of um, patriarchal and, and um, massively uh, harmful uh, higher education system that you've so eloquently um, dismantled uh, in, in, um, in what you've talked about. We've talked about so, so much um, today. I want to ask you if there's any other, um, any other thing you wanted to talk about or anything that we haven't touched on yet in this podcast that you really want our listeners to know. Um, I guess just one thing uh, again about like how amazing and wonderful language is, um, is that (laughs) we, a lot of people often say, you know, language is what separates us from the animals. (laughs) Right. Um, And it's not our language. It's our history. Right. Mm. Plenty of uh, creatures communicate. Right. But what we have the power to do is to create a record um, we are able to say, here's the stuff we did before <laughs> so that we can know that, right? It's not, it's not the actual ability of articulate speech, right? That separates us from the animals. It's that we are able to, um, create 
you know, actual physical reminders of where we've been and what we do and what we've learned. And so that um, to me is what I think about as being really important when we, when we sit down to write um, is that we are, we are contributing to that collective history of what it means to be human. (laughs) Um, And that is incredibly powerful. And so that's, um, you know, if, if for no other reason than, you know, when, when we describe something, we're not just describing it for our immediate audience, but for all of the subsequent audiences that come behind them, um, that should give people reason to be effortful, to be purposeful, um, when, when you write. And so like, yeah, it's, it's, it's our history that is what language gives us. It's that, that's our, the gift of our evolution, right? Um, and so, yeah, I, uh, I'm going to stop rambling. <laughs> no, no, your focus on history has me super excited over here. As a historian. <laughs> and, you know, I, I was just like thinking as you're describing this, you know, like, and I guess I didn't quite think about it in this way, but like, I, I talk about language a lot of my classes as I, I, I know that Derek and Nathan do too. And like, we talk about, yeah, how like repre- representation matters and how we describe people matters. And I'm like, oh, I wish I could get. I wish Kelly, I wish my students could do like a crap, like a course with you. And then a course with me, I'm just like, (laughs) just because these skills are so valuable and like it is whether it, whether, you know, they're thinking about what they're writing for the historical record or kind of what they're writing for like a journalistic piece or really anything comments on Facebook, right. If, if they were to kind of take any further steps to think through what it is that they're writing, like that could be really powerful. The, 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 the possibilities are really powerful. Um, so I, I just, I really appreciate what you said right there. Thanks. Yeah, it is. It's everything. It's like anytime somebody gives you a survey, like people hate having to fill out little stuff, right? Anytime somebody gives you a survey with like a box, like a comment box, fill out that comment box. <laughs> like tell people what you think about stuff. Like, you know, mm-hmm. if people are giving you any space with a blinking cursor to put how you feel about something in there you better put that in there that is like <laughs> that is such a wonderful invitation <laughs> yeah well listen kelly right two things first i'm really impressed with the field of sociolinguistics i have actually <laughs> never really met a sociolinguist that i didn't think was doing really wonderful work uh in a very provocative and just like compelling way um now i haven't met that many sociolinguists but i just want to say that uh, i'm down on a lot of disciplines but uh i'm up on yours uh so that's one thing two and this is way more important we've had a lot of amazing guests on the show like people we deeply deeply respect and who have spoken brilliantly on a wide range of issues. Uh, We come out of pretty much every interview feeling so thrilled and gratified with what folks have shared with us. You are the first graduate student we've had on the show. And I can honestly say no one has spoken more authoritatively, more accessibly, taught us and our listeners more effectively than you have. So I just want to tell you, first of all, thank you. And second of all, uh, I don't know how much it's worth, but uh, there are three podcast over podcasters over here who'd probably write you the best damn reference letter uh, you've ever seen. <laughs> thank you so much, Kelly Wright. 
you are so kind. Thank you all for having me. I'm I'm so excited to be on this on this podcast. You guys are doing incredible work, and I think it's really important. I love listening, so I'm just thrilled um, uh, to have been here and to meet you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to another episode of The End of Sport. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, and subscribe. Give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod, or shoot us an email at theendofsport at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.